Well, who has appreciated this service so far? What a privilege it is to uh, co-lead this ministry with Pat uh, on your behalf and have so many people participating, particularly in the middle of summer when other churches are just donating it down or dialing it up. Thank you for your help. I first met Charlie when she was two years old. She was on top of a dock that was about twice as high as this platform and had little floaties on her arms and I watched her jump into the water, go under and pop up with a big smile on her face while all the older kids were doing this. I thought, what an amazing kid. She's actually had a bit of an amazing journey because her parents have taken her and her two older siblings to China for the last couple years to teach English and Charlie's now in kindergarten. The problem is, is Charlie, when she's in kindergarten, likes to talk about God, and she's been finding out that her classmates have very different ideas. And when she, they've toured around East Asia, they've come to places, and Charlie's first question when they get off the plane or, or get out of the car is, what God do they worship here, says the five-year-old. It got so bad that when they were home for the summer, uh, they called up their friend Nathan and said, we need you to go on an ice cream date with Charlie and answer some questions. I thought, how bad could it be? She's five, right? So her first question was, who made God? Well, oh, okay, God's eternality. All right, well, he's not like us, Charlie. He's bigger than the whole universe. He's always existed and he made everything. Well, wouldn't he be lonely? Okay, I have to explain the Trinity to a five-year-old. All right, um, God always has had love in himself, Charlie, because he's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they love each other so much that they're totally one. So he wasn't lonely. Oh, that's good, she said. Well, why was Jesus born? Okay, the incarnation, systematic theology with Charlie. Um, okay, Charlie, have you ever played with ants? Yeah, I have. Uh, did you talk to them? Do you, do you think that they could understand you? Probably not. Your voice probably sounded like thunder to those ants. And uh, imagine if you could become an ant, Charlie, and then you could be friends with them. Well, that's kind of what God did when he became, sent his son to become human so he could be our friends. So that worked. So she got to the big question, why do people believe in so many different gods? And I said, okay, Charlie, imagine the ants. And they're all kind of aware of this big God out there. And one says, I'm going to build a tall temple so I can get closer to that God. Another one says, I'm going to meditate until all I can feel is the bigness of God. And then some other ants say, there, there's got to be some smaller in-between gods that we can relate to, because that one, I just don't understand what he's saying, and he scares me. So far away. And, and it didn't get any easier. She's, go, she's like, okay, um, why did he die on the cross? What's about hell? What's heaven? And I'm just I'm sweating bullets as I'm answering these questions. And then, then I think, but I'm out of the woods. And then she says, oh, a girl in my kindergarten class in China decided to believe in Christmas. But Santa didn't bring her any, uh, any presents at Christmas. Why not? Uh, it's not quite the same thing. Uh, oh, it only works if her parents believe too. And, and, and just go talk to your parents. So I put the ball right back in their court because they had given me all these deep questions. And I think they're watching online right now. So hi, Charlie. I think we all have those questions though. You look around and you say, uh, do all paths lead to God? And if they don't, how do I know the way? So I'd like to delve into that a little bit with you this morning, if you would. 
And we need to talk to understand that on a deeper level about natural revelation. The Bible's opening words are, in the beginning, God created. You can go around the world and ask them for their foundational stories, their myths or their scriptures, and they all talk about God creating. Now, bear in mind, it's very different. In some of them, there's a cosmic animal being slain and, and the world arises out of that. And in other ones, uh, there's a distant God who starts it in motion and then puts all the smaller gods in charge of finishing it up. But no matter where you go, there's this essential reality out there that they go, God did create. That shouldn't surprise us because the Bible in Psalm 19 says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. And so we see that when an aboriginal would perhaps acknowledge God as the great spirit in the sky. Ancient Greek philosophers like Aristotle figured it out. They said, there must, everything's in motion. Who started it? He must be the unmoved mover. And so in very radically different forms, people have reached out through all time and all nations to know their creator. Another part of natural revelation is conscience. In Romans 2, it says, the Gentiles, that's just everyone that's not a Jew, it's most of us, Gentiles demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. When Paul appeared before the people in Athens, the philosophers who didn't know anything about Jesus or the revelation through the Jews, um, he talked to them. He said, you know God created you. You have an awareness that there's something moving the course of your history, a divine providence, and you have an awareness of the very presence of God, but you don't know what to do with it. And, and, and he said that God has done these things so that people should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So to summarize, natural revelation is creation declaring its creator, its conscience, it's God's providence, and it's a general awareness of God's presence. Perhaps there are a few examples in the Bible of those who didn't have direct access to God who, who responded correctly to this. But unfortunately, it is very difficult to feel your way towards God. The reason is that natural revelation is incomplete. It's easily misunderstood, especially if the conscience becomes corrupted. And it's really a question, begging for an answer, and very few respond correctly. What normally happens is a false response to natural revelation, which the Bible calls idolatry. Romans 1 lays it out so clearly. It says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. This mic is without excuse too. 
but not to blame the tech guys. That was, I had a little mishap this morning that, where the thing fell down, so it's probably my fault. We have some of the best tech people on the planet, by the way. All right, so God's qualities have been evident to everyone. So next slide, please. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desire of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Check this out. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. From that we can see that idolatry comes in many forms. One is outright false gods. Gods whose character is fundamentally different from the real God. Perhaps it's a God who gives you power over other people. Perhaps it is a goddess, an old version or a new version, that promises sexual fulfillment. Often people have customized a God that fits in right around their sinful desires and doesn't call for any adjustments. And many people have worshipped many gods instead of the one God. So false gods is the first form. The second form that idolatry takes is intermediate spirits. Like the ants, you kind of feel like God is just too far away and you need something to fill the middle. In uh, some cultures, uh, African, Korean, and many others, they look to uh, ancestors, grandparents and great-grandparents and so on that have passed on into the spirit world to connect them to this world. They may also be afraid of those ancestors if they don't please them. Today, people go to seances hoping to hear from the spirit of a departed loved one. Even excessive focus on angels or saints can become a substitute for direct access to God himself. Because God said in his first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The third form that idolatry takes is worshiping nature, serving created things rather than the creator. The Celts and others worshiped Mother Earth instead of Father God who created nature. And today, people are repeating the same ancient error. But the big question about worshiping false gods is this. Are they worshiping made-up ideas? Or is there a reality behind these false gods? I have been in places of worship from other religions, and the overwhelming feeling I got was just emptiness. I looked around, I saw beautiful architecture, I appreciated the moral and philosophical code that they were embracing. But nothing really struck me as terribly evil or terribly good. It just felt like maybe a detour. Isaiah 44 says that the gods of the nations really are just nothing. There's no reality to so many of them. But there are religions and spiritualities that I've been around that actually made my skin crawl. Whether it looked lovely on the outside or dark, there was a dangerous reality behind it. Deuteronomy says, they offered sacrifices to demons, which are not God, to gods they had not known before. Well, you might say, well, I only interact with good spirits of light. This is becoming extremely common in our society. 
But the Bible says Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. You might say, I only do white magic. Again, Satan himself masquerades. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan is masquerading more and more in our culture. Last month, we had Dr. Elliott, our national superintendent here, and he shared a stat that Wicca has grown by 281% or more over the last 10-year period. As you drive around Moncton right now, you may be noticing the billboards that are up, advertising a New Age festival coming in October. They say, make big magic, unleash your sacred fire, and show very powerful, wonderful-looking women uh, on these things. You'll notice them. Everywhere I go, I hear about crystals, healing touch, inner energy. At best, these are silly superstitions. What, what is a rock going to do? But at worst, they are inviting in evil spirits who have disguised themselves as good. These spiritualities are often very attractive because they offer a way for people supposedly to control their circumstances, whether it be the future or their success or who will they'll be with. But in the end, these spiritualities end up controlling you. And I have met many people who needed to be delivered from those spiritualities and the bondage that had brought them into and the dead end in their life. Church, let's be crystal clear. The Bible is specifically against magic, fortune-telling, witchcraft, tarot cards, occult, seances, psychics, and spiritual possession ceremonies, or most everything else you'll see on TLC. Okay? When God was talking to Israel as he took them into their promised land, he said, do not let your people practice fortune-telling or use sorcery, or interpret omens, or engage in witchcraft, or cast spells, or function as mediums, or psychics, or call forth the spirits of the dead. It's been around forever, and it's been off limits forever. In the New Testament, as the gospel was shared with a very pagan society, there was an occasion in Ephesus where, out of obedience to God, people came and burned their idolatrous scrolls and, and, and magic books and stuff like that. And, and the Bible says the bonfire they had was millions of dollars worth of stuff that went up in flames. You see, with only natural revelation, the majority of people fall into the worship of idols or they get caught worshiping demonic spirits, even if they don't know they are, because darkness is always trying to extinguish the light. So God did not leave humanity trying to feel their way towards him. He directly revealed himself to us. The Bible, says, the Bible began to be written down in 1500 B.C. and was closed at the end of the first century over that 1,600-year period, God showed himself to the Jewish people, and 39 different people wrote down what God had done or what God had inspired them to say. He called Abraham and began to show him who he was, and from Abraham, the Jewish nation was supposed to emerge and display God's glory to all nations. Because God was in that process of clearing up all the confusion that had developed about who he was and what it meant to have faith in him. So you know the story where uh, the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, they get enslaved in Egypt. 
Guys, we hardly, we, sometimes because we're so like uh, modern-minded and we don't think about spiritual things, we're all completely scientific, we don't realize what was going on there. Egypt had powerful gods that they were worshiping. There was people that could do miraculous things through that power, and God engaged them in a power struggle. And each one of those ten plagues was a direct power struggle with one of the Egyptian gods. And, and, and God said, I am greater, and he showed that there's only one God. Once the nation of Israel was established in their promised land, their, their, the pinnacle of that experience was when King Solomon was there and all the surrounding nations far and wide heard about this wisdom built on reverence to one God and they came to see him. And even later, as the Jews began to make the mistake of mixing other spiritualities with the true worship of God because they wanted to have the fun that was associated with it, God sent them in exile to Babylon, the, the empire of the time. And there they turned to God. And we have those amazing stories of where all of a sudden God is being shown to the rulers of the world, the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks. And increasingly, they began to worship one God. And the Jewish nation accomplished a mission of preparing the world for the arrival of the one God in Jesus. John 1 says, The one who is the true light who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him, by and large. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn with a birth that comes from God. And so even to the Jewish people that knew more about God than anyone else. They had all the lead-up information. Jesus appeared to them and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if he's saying that to the Jewish people, he is saying it to all nations, trust me. Because he is the completion of all natural revelation. He is the completion of all direct revelation. And he calls us to put our faith in him. In the early church, in a very pluralistic society, Peter said there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved other than Jesus. And he was prepared to pay for it with his life. Paul said to those Athenian philosophers I talked about, they were feeling their way towards God. He said the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. And he wrote there is one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Jesus Christ. So today, we as a church in Moncton, made up of believers from all over the world, boldly invite all nations and all people to hear the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, and to put aside all incomplete or idolatrous versions of God, and to be filled with not just any spirit, but the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's what we're doing at Summer Spectacular in six days, 12 o'clock from 3 at Victoria Park. We're inviting all cultures, nations, religions, people of private faith and no faith, no matter where they're from, to come and experience a little bit of Jesus. And like always, we're starting with the love of Jesus. Um, we're partnering with uh, the Peter McKee Food Bank, and they've asked that you bring a non-perishable food item, the healthier the better. Just bring it to the park. 
And they're going to have stuff to distribute to the community. We have other partners. We're going to have fun. We're going to have games, music, food. But we're going to have worship. And we're going to have Bibles there. And we're going to have a prayer tent. And we're going to have you interacting with people, inviting them to Jesus. It's going to be a great event. And I am so excited about that. All right. We're going to do a little set change here for a second. Some of this stuff is heavy theology, isn't it? Man, be between Charlie and natural revelation and general uh, direct revelation, it can get to be a lot. So I want to close with just a couple object lessons. You know, when a giant tidal wave crashes into a coastline and makes the news all over the world, or if a giant flood floods half a country like happens in Bangladesh sometimes, this crisis is very bad at first, but it's the second crisis that is worse because... When floodwaters go over all the wells, disrupt the supplies, and cut off the roads to other outside water coming in, all the water becomes contaminated. There's even bodies in the water sometimes of animals and others. So the water becomes contaminated and waterborne illness strikes. So the Wesleyan Church, through our organization World Hope, has made some really cool rapid response teams. These are people that get a call, say, we need you in Bangladesh. They get on a plane, and they go over there with water filtration systems. And uh, they backpack around there uh, for weeks at a time, filtering water, setting things up for people, and saving lives. Did you know that we have two people right in our own church that are on that rapid response team and ready to go? John Westrup and Alan Dunn. John, uh, this filter that we've got here... Um, is that what you would normally be taking into, uh, into a zone? Absolutely. This is certainly one of the types we would take into a zone, but this is a very simple model. There's also one that's very advanced that Alan and I have been trained on uh, that uses solar power and uh, can provide clean drinking water from salt water, seawater, even stagnant ponds, and up to 8 to 16 gallons an hour. So this is really cool. Um, Alan, I see you've got some mud here. Yeah, that's nice. Um, you see this water here? This is, this is good, pure water. Nothing wrong with it. But uh, we're going to just add a little something to it. See, that pure water represents the natural revelation of who God is to people. It's good. It's, it's, it's getting them in the right direction. But this mud that Alan is spooning in here and mixing in, this represents all the errors that can get uh, in there, the things that Satan can insert with people being barely aware of what he's doing, the false spirituality that, uh, that he causes to happen. So <clears throat> does that look good to drink? It's not. All right. Why don't we go ahead and start filtering it here? So, Alan, tell us about this little old filter. So, basically, the bad water is going into the top, and we have a small filter here on the bottom that will filter out down to 0.1 microns. And basically, the water that comes out, you should be able to drink. You know, that filter is like Jesus. 
He takes who we are and he filters it through who he is. You know, a lot of people in our culture, in North America, if that's where you were born, they're afraid that if they come to Jesus, they, they, they got to be like some stereotypical Ned Flanders. They're afraid they're going to lose who they are. But, you know, when you, when, when you come to Jesus, he, he lets you keep all the good. He just takes away the bad. So if you're a free spirit, you're going to be more free when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're a rebel without a cause, he's going to say, I have a cause. It's going to be good. And if you're from another culture, uh, sometimes people are afraid that if they come to Jesus, they have to whitewash the beauty and color of their own culture. But they don't. That's just a misconception because the first Christians were not Europeans. They were Middle Eastern Jews. The second Christians were North Africans and Syrians. And you know what? They didn't have to become Jews to be leave in Jesus. And when the gospel spread to Greece and Rome and the rest of Europe, they didn't have to become Middle Easterns, Africans, or Jews to believe in Jesus. And even though there's been a while in, in history where the dawn turn them on. Okay. So as I was saying, world history has shifted now. Did you, did you know that Christianity is growing faster in Africa and Asia and being led by those people groups, not European people groups? And so when you come to Jesus from another culture, you are coming to something that can be just as you and just as colorful as you are. Jesus just takes out the bad and gives you the good. Um, and that's why as Christians, when we interact with those from other uh, cultures and religions, we can actually look for the good that's in their culture because we believe that God has been breathing some life into that culture to give a witness to himself. So if we can appreciate an aboriginal who's really connected to God through nature, we can admire a person who's extremely devoted to their discipline and spirituality. If we're talking to uh, someone who's a Jew and doesn't believe in Jesus, or someone who's a Muslim, we actually have some common direct revelation because they accept portions of the Bible, and we can start there. So by viewing these other religions as incomplete, we can use the good parts of them like foundations for the gospel. God's placed these big questions into every culture, and Christ, let me tell you, is a perfect answer to them. So this allows us to genuinely appreciate other cultures without making the error of thinking that all ways are equally true. So here's what it looks like, guys. When you went to Africa 100 years ago and you heard drums, it wasn't a good thing. Drums in the night, that meant some really dark ceremonies were going on. But you know what it means now when you hear drums? It means it's time to go to church. We're going to worship the Lord now. And you got the rhythm like these kids who are up here. You know, in, in the Eastern cultures, meditation's a big thing and emptying yourself of everything. Well, you know what makes meditation better? Being filled with the Holy Spirit while you do it and the Word of God. My own ancestors, some of them were Scottish. When they played bagpipes, you want to run. Because they're going to come and try to kill you and eat your liver before you pass out. Like, they weren't nice people. But now, when I hear bagpipes, 
It's usually to the tune, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You see, by contextualizing the gospel to each culture and individual person, the true beauty of who they are comes out and worships and praises God, and it filters out all the mud. So, how about a drink? I'm ready. I'm thirsty, too. All right. Pure, clean water. Thank you, gentlemen. And the last little object lesson I want to give you is something that says that simply when God has directly revealed himself to you through the scripture, through the presence of Jesus, it calls for a certain response. Undivided love. The Meru people in Kenya have a proverb and they say, when a man is in love, he doesn't count how long and steep the road is to his fiance's house. You got that? And when God was in love with you, he did not count how long and steep the road was to your salvation. He sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you and pay for your sins and to rise again with a new life for you. And that calls for nothing other than an undivided response from you of love to God. You know, the Bible says that God is a jealous God and not in a nasty, insecure way, but in a way that says, I am completely for you and you are completely for me. God allows no competition. He's much like my wife. We've been married 25 years. And uh, after we got married, Jen informed me of some fine print that she had inserted into the marriage agreement. She calls it the non-competition clause. If I'm unfaithful to her, she will kill me. <laughs> At first I thought she was joking, but then she'd be watching CSI and she'd take notes. Or she'd come back from Costco with six bottles of bleach and they weren't even on sale. She just wants to be ready in case. Not really. She likes to just keep me guessing about the joke. But on a heart level, she's communicating to me that there is zero room in our marriage for anyone else, ever. And Jen, you are absolutely right. Jen, uh, you fill my eyes and my ears and my heart with your beauty. I love you. And how could we respond in any other way to the love of God? God has designed us to worship and love him alone. No lesser version of him will do that allows you to divide your love and loyalties between other spiritualities or sinful priorities in your life. No other spirit gets to counterfeit the Holy Spirit. With all the truth that God has given us in Jesus, we can never go back to the incompleteness, the errors, and the demonic deceptions of spiritualities from the past. We can't go back to the muddy water when we have the living water of Jesus Christ. 
People sometimes say spirit is spirit. Water is water. What's the difference? The difference is the living water of Jesus in your, in your heart and the Holy Spirit, the only spirit you can trust with your life. I invite you today as we prepare to take communion to consider whether you've been prepared to let all of you go through Jesus, that he can filter out the bad. And to consider if your heart is completely devoted to the Lord, if you've given space for any other spirituality or priority in your life, I invite you now to consider.